This is the Too Much Information podcast from WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker, and I'm very excited to share this hour-long interview that I did with Richard Hell the other day in his apartment in the East Village. And I just want to note that these long-form interviews are the new format for Too Much Information. But if you're missing folks like Chris and Peter and Laura and all of the stories about my tawdry adventures, you can find all that on my new podcast, which is called Benjamin Walker's Theory of Everything. And that's being hosted on the Public Radio Exchange. You can find it at toe.prx.org. I hope you can give it a listen. And now, Richard Hell. You're listening to WFMU. This is Too Much Information. My name is Benjamin Walker, and this week on the program, we're hanging out with Richard Hell, who has just published his autobiography called I Dreamed I Was a Very Clean Tramp. Welcome to WFMU, Richard. Hi, Benjamin. Thanks for, for doing this. I have to say, I'm really glad you said no to coming to, uh, w- to, to, coming to WFMU because I get to, to see your place here in the East Village. And being a book person, it's always great to be in a room overflowing with books <laughs> do, do you have your shelf that like is if there's a fire that the ones that you're going to grab first like prepared someone told me i had to do that the other day and came over and showed yeah, me yeah that's occurred to me but th- mm, i don't want to go there even mentally <laughs> you say all right all right well i i did it the other day but, uh, but you know i do have um my my sort of rarer and most treasured books kind of cordoned off so oh, yeah. i mean like and that uh cabinet behind you's book like books they're my special ah. sort of you know objects of collection um and personal value and up there too so i know i know where the ones are that are my fetish so you have you have gone there a bit you you didn't pull well, out it wasn't the about shelf. fire it was just <laughs> it was just you know i mean the the shelves are organized yeah they're mostly alphabetical, but then also, um, uh, but I mean, they're they're divided, you know, into sections: poetry, fiction, nonfiction, photography, and I then alphabetical of- within that. But then the biggest um, section is the ones yet to be filed. <laughs> of course, <laughs> I, I do see a lot of photography books, though. Photography, right. yeah. yeah, there's a fair number. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've lived in the same apartment. Uh, since the early 70s. And do you, I was really curious about this. Do you have any other friends or associates with similar situations that have been in the same residence here in New York City for, for decades? Uh-huh. You do? Yeah. Okay, because I, I moved to New York about seven years ago and I've been in one place and it seems... Well, you know, a fair number of the people who I um, knew back in those days have kept their apartments because why would they move when they they were rent stabilized yeah. and, the, and the rent was so low and goes up so gradually, you know? Yeah, so, yeah there's a few. I ended up in one of those, and I guess that's you know, why I've stayed, too. But it seems that my experience is very different than a lot of my friends who are moving, like, almost every two years. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems that that... I've, I've been curious about if you've ever thought about what that's done for your sense of the city and your sense of yourself being so stationary in one place. Well, you know, up until I found this apartment, I moved every mm-hmm. uh, six months or 18 months. I mean... Um, I would only stay in a place um, at, um, as, as long as I could sort of scam, you know I mean? Because uh, I was made so little money that mm-hmm. I'd always hit the, um, the 
<laughs> the rough patch where I wouldn't be able to pay rent, and then you just stretch it out for two months before they can legally evict you, and then you go find another place. Um, but when I found this one, I knew I'd hit pay dirt. But I also was really lucky because, yeah. um, and <laughs> because I, I was still pretty much of a mess. Um, but I had landlords that were even more of a mess than me. They were they had Alzheimer's or something, and they would just neglect to collect rent. Um, really? So I would go for months. Um, with just not having to pay. And then they would just get kind of bewildered when it hit them that the rent was due. Um, and then they couldn't figure out, hmm. Um, and anyway, so it, 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 it was kind of a set of circumstances that allowed me to keep this place as long as I have. Yeah, it was the, it was the perfect place for you. But um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I recommend that to everybody. Search, search for That's the best kind very of old land, landlords. <laughs> It seems that, you know, you show up in New York on page 50 and the beginning of chapter 6. And New York is one of the main characters in this book. Um, and, and I'm really, I'm, you know, the sense of the city that you had then when you moved here. You know, I'm, I want to hear about, like, what your cultural landmarks and people were when, you know, you decided to come here as a young man. Um, well, I had a really deluded idea of what New York was like because my only exposure to it had been because my grandmother lived here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, she only, you know, she wasn't she wasn't born here. She didn't grow up here, but she she moved here in later in her life. Um, uh, but it was when I was still a kid, uh -huh. and um, she lived in the West Village, and yeah. uh, and this beautiful old. Um, little complex of apartment buildings with a, with a courtyard that um, was a kind of garden, um, but all uh, really humble, but uh, at the same time gorgeous. And, and um, the West Village is like that too. It was more so then, but it's now more glitzy. But um, at that time, it was just this, you know, isolated... Um, enclave of uh, tree-lined old um, townhouses and tenements and um, uh, it, it was really intimate and pretty and the only that's all I'd seen of New York yeah. when I came to New York, New York I thought the whole city was like that <laughs> 14th Street was a shock yeah. <laughs> that's a little bit of an exaggeration but um, it it's it's true that uh, I didn't really quite know what I was getting into. Really? I mean, I was looking for excitement, and I found excitement. Um, but I, I did have this kind of um, misconception of, yeah, but of it, what New York was like. I mean, sure, you had skyscrapers in view and everything, but um, I thought the whole style of life was the way it was in the old-time Greenwich Village because that's all I'd seen as a kid. Which sounds very respectable. I mean, but at the same time, there were artists and musicians living around Yeah, well, that was part of it, too. You know, my grandma was real sophisticated. You know, she... Okay. Uh, so it wasn't just um, she was like tree uh, lines. And, and, you know, she had wonderful books and art in the walls. You know, um, nothing fancy, you know, like prints that you could buy at a museum or something like that. But, um, but no, sure, I was totally aware that um, the West Village was had this history of Bohemia, yeah, and, okay. and that was part of what was nice about it. It seems that a lot of people come here with their own delusions of New York, though. I mean, I read Luke Sant's book, 
uh, low life and then please kill me when i was 22 so i had this very distinct very exciting version of new york that i was like oh man why can't i live there i'm stuck in boston this is terrible so i don't know it, it, it still seems that what you want the the new york of please kill me and low life <laughs> you can find that um there's 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 still slums <laughs> it yeah, I, I guess you know in the, in the parts that it maps out, they're very you different. Can, you can go get nice. <laughs> you can go get stabbed if you really want. Well, I, I haven't really seen that outside. All I see are signs like you know hand brined pickles or you know polecat tuna sandwiches. Yeah. But that's that's what it seems more around here. But you know, my friend Pike Malinowski, a fellow radio producer and poet, did this East Village poetry rock that you are featured in. This is an MP3 people that can download and then put on their device and walk around the East Village and learn about the East Village poetry scene of the 60s and 70s. You're featured in it in as well. And I'm wondering, did you, you talk about in the book um, immersing yourself in this world of poets, but did, that, did you have that before you got here, or was all that that you soaked up once you arrived? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I don't think I talked about in the book about immersing myself in the well, world of poets. I mean, um, maybe immersing is, is to, a strong word. But. Uh, yeah, I, I, I basically um, uh, was kind of I, I, I was kind of put off by the, the worlds of poets, not in, not out of any kind of disrespect or, or anything, but just because I didn't. I, there was no. I was too proud. I didn't want to like apply for mm -hmm. uh, membership in some pre-existing society. Um, I, no, I started a magazine. I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't go immerse myself in a world of poets. Yeah, I mean, I just I came here to poetry. write. It didn't substitute. have to do with uh, any kind of school or existing. Um, you know, movement or community or group. I, yes, yes. I, substitute I, the word poetry instead of poet. You talk about reading poetry. Yeah, that's a big difference. Okay, yeah. then that's what I meant. That's that's more what I meant. Did you have a sense? Did you get that sense of the poetry before? Did you have that before you came here, or was that something you you really started to find more? My the, interest in poetry. No, the the mag. Some of the magazines, the the self published books that you talk about reading and collecting. You know, early on. Um. No, I wasn't aware of them until I came to New York where they were being produced, yeah. you know, because they didn't really travel. Of course. I mean, it was a really local thing. Yeah, but you did um, have an interest in poetry. But there was a, there, there was a lot of activity in, uh, on the Lower East Side, publishing Mimeo magazines, mm -hmm. and, um, and that was inspiring, uh, really inspiring. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, this whole attitude towards your work that you didn't um, apply to uh, the established fortress of existing um, respectable poets. No, you just uh, had an idea for a book of poetry, um, typed it up yeah. um, on Mimeo um, stencils yeah. and ran it off, and the next day you had a book. And, um, and, and those books were, were also gorgeous. I mean, people think of Mimeos as being um, degraded or you know, like second second rate or, um, and, you know, inferior and in, in materially, but they're not. They're not, not it, it really evolved, it's, it, especially in, um, in, in that time and place in the Lower East Side in the, in the late 60s. Yeah. Um, the, some of the most beautiful books I know were produced on Mimeo machines with drawings in them and um, carefully designed. And um, 
so yeah, that was really inspiring that you could just take it into your own hands. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't a matter of uh, looking for acceptance by these straight-laced conservative academic poets who were the people in the um, university poetry magazines and the established poetry magazines, um, but just um, just doing it yourself. Yeah, but you talk about this pride you had of not wanting to apply to this school. Is that because you know you, you just you know you you know you know you just pushed back a bit when I said poets instead of poetry, but it seems that you know another well because it, 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 I've seen that in a couple of reviews too where yeah. they say I came to New York and joined up with the poetry scene. Yeah, uh, that's completely the reverse of what. Sure, but I would take it even further. It seems that you have a hesitation about even calling yourself a poet sometimes. Like, you've pushed back in some reviews well, about that. Well, I'm not. I mean, um, I, you know, I maybe, maybe write two poems a year. Um, uh, and I apply myself a lot harder to a lot yeah. of other kinds of work. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's not really accurate to call me a poet. Though, you know, at the same time, I take it as a compliment um, if it's uh, applied by the right person, um, <laughs> um, because you know I do have my, my values in yeah. in writing. Uh, I, I think of as being kind of the values of a poet, yeah. but I'm not actively a poet. I don't publish books of poetry. I mean, in, in, if if I were to do a selected, I mean, a, a collected poems. I mean, everything that I'd want to um, like. Um, present as representing whatever I'd done in poetry, yeah. it would probably be like 50 pages out of, you know, sure, a, sure. out of a whole lifetime. Yeah, but this, so I'm not really a poet. Sure, but at this period we're talking about with the magazines, you were making one yourself. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it seemed, uh, there's a, a line when you talk about rejecting a, a poem of Allen Ginsberg's, I think you say, we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, it was just because it was a really obnoxious thing to do. Yeah. I mean, it's not because I, um, I'm an admirer of Ginsburg's especially, because yeah. um, uh, he didn't really have much of a influence or effect on me. He wasn't one of the, it was from a different stream of what, than what interested me, but it was really obnoxious to write him and ask for a poem and then reject it. It's very funny too. I mean, there's, 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 the book is very funny and, and and it's very beautifully written. But I, I have to say, there there are some you know subtle moments of humor, and that that is one I laughed out loud a lot. But you know, talking about making these magazines and books, you know, one of your earliest collaborations with Tom Verlaine can, is a collaboration on the book that you called Teresa Stern. No, it's no. called Wanna Go Out. W- Wanna Go Out, sorry. She's, that's, Teresa Stern is the name yes. of the author. Yes, okay. Yeah. So it's called Wanna Go Out. Um, can you talk about that uh, collaboration? Well, um, that was kind of the last major thing I did in poetry before I switched entirely to music. Um, and it did feel like a sort of culmination and kind of liberation for me because... Uh, it was really interesting to see what it was like to write collaborations. I mean, um, there have been other people's collaborations that I liked, and um, and it had always uh, intrigued me that idea of, of doing something as thought of as being as personal as a poem collaboratively. Um, and we just started, um, we just sort of developed this like recreation of handing a typewriter yeah. back and forth. Um, and taking turns writing a few lines. And 
it's funny. It is, you know, um, uh, it it it's like a, it's like playing. It, it's it, I don't know what to compare it to exactly. It's like a, um, you know, it's it's like playing tennis or something, but with the idea of creating a beautiful game instead mm -hmm. of winning. Though there was, you know, it, 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 part of the fun of it was. Um, uh, of undermining what the other guy had just said, you know. What, is that, what does that mean? But, um, uh, well, you know, you, you, there's lots of ways of doing that. You know, they say something flowery, and you turn it into, uh, you, you know, you, you, with the next line, you um, put it in a different light. But anyway, so I started seeing that. Um, the stuff that we'd write, we we had a kind of eccentric um, uh, private world going anyway, where uh, we were just goofing all the time, yeah. um, and uh, the the poems that we were doing were very turned out. It was obvious um, to be really different from what we each wrote separately and but not only that they had a certain consist consistency to them they they did seem to have be a kind of third consciousness going on and so um i got the idea of imagining a person um who was the author of these um poems we were doing and i invented a it was Tom's idea to make her a woman when I, uh, okay. and uh, but I thought that was brilliant. And then I made up a biography for her. And at that time, as you mentioned, I was um, publishing books myself, you know, in various ways. I had a little printing press, but this one wasn't done on the printing press. Um, it was done at some kind of nonprofit place that would um, that made themselves available to poets. Um, basically, for, after the first few poems were being written with both of us aware that we were going to be presenting them as the work of this uh, invented third person. And uh, and I published the book, Want to Go Out, by Teresa Stern, and an edition of 500. And, you know, there's no uh, mention in the book that it's anything other than the work of this yeah. writer, Teresa Stern. And there's a author's photo of her that um, I made by having a friend come over and put us in makeup and wig and take uh, a picture of each of us in, you know, the same position in the frame, and then I superimpose them to get a picture of her. I love that. Um, so yeah. that's what that is. Yeah. So you, you, you mentioned that, you know, it was your one of your earliest collaborations, and you were very excited by the idea, but in the book you talk about, there you mentioned the word undermining, but there was some difficulties, too, and I'm really curious what you made of these difficulties then I mean you're you're really close you're super super close friends and yet there's something that you know that we see later on when you start working together musically that that seems to be there from day one when you're working together on these poems sort of difficult you're talking in about like the friction between yeah. me and Berlin yeah yeah um, what did you think uh, of it then? was a, I think it's you know uh, um. I don't know. It doesn't seem unnatural to me. You know, I mean, it's not like anything dramatic. It's just um, 
um, you know, it was in that period in life when you have best friends and um, when you're both kind of have have um, like a strong drive to um, to achieve something um, in this weird realm of art that we both did, um, uh, there's, you know, uh, that's, that's very, um, that's, you know, that's, that's a very solitary kind of pursuit, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, there's bound to, um, but, but, you know, we were linked by this common drive and by respect for each other's, uh, sort of the way our minds are put together. But then there are all kinds of personal ways in which we were different. And so that, that, created um, the friction here and there. Um, you know, I think it's a really common story. I mean, if you look at, I mean, um, almost always artists as as young people are um, sort of cluster in, in, um, in groups yeah. um, that have, you know, that usually basically has to do with um, uh, Offering an alternative to to what had been going on immediately before them, <laughs> um, overturning the yeah. uh, um, you know what what was generally accepted at that moment, um, and then and so um, they have a lot in common there uh, in their aims and in their work for a few years, and then. You know, as they mature, they go separate ways. Sure, sure. It's like, the, you know, the, whether you're talking about the Cubists or, um, you know, Rockabilly or, uh, um, uh, it's just a, it's really a natural common thing. Oh, absolutely. The, collab the friction that comes out of collaboration between close people is, you know, probably throughout human I'm history. I'm not talking about friction between between close people now we've moved on to talking about how um you know you have a lot in common um for a few short years um and you have a sort of shared aims um but then as you mature the the differences in you become more yeah. um pronounced and you diverge you know it's it's like Sure, but really, that, like a but normal even, pattern. I, even backing up before artistic differences, there's a friendship here. I mean, what's interesting about you and Tom is that you meet when you're in high school, and you know this friendship. There's an adventure that you go on, running away to Florida, where it ends with a field on fire. I, I don't know. There, there just seems to be before artistic aims a friendship. Uh huh. Yeah. That that and, and I, I guess for me, one of the questions in the book is how could things go so wrong for people that are this close that have such an awesome bond of friendship. I don't think it's, it's surprising at all. I think it happens all the time. Yeah. Just like I was saying. Alright, so <laughs> when you set out to write this book, did you have a sense of what you wanted to get out of dredging some of this old stuff up? Especially when it comes to Tom? Um, no. It, I, I mean, it wasn't about dredging old stuff up in some uh, you, you way <laughs> that was like painful or traumatic. It was... Uh, uh, I was writing the story of my life, and uh, I was basically just looking at myself as a specimen uh, because that was my aim um, yeah. to to analyze the specimen. Um, uh, so I just put myself back in in those in in that 
and, and you know the sequence of events as they took place from when I was a child mm -hmm. uh, up until the bookends, and um, and looked at what happened and tried my best to describe it accurately. Um, that story when you guys went on that adventure, um, where, where what was the plan with that when you went when you were going towards Florida? We, this is All spinning right. a. This is a All right. We <laughs> Well, you gotta give me I mean, you're like here. you're I'm like so, wanting me to to analyze every page no, of the I'm book. No, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not. We can move on. It's just like you know what it is. It's just that that end of the book. When we end with the book, you end with an encounter with you and Tom. I mean, that's that's actually the last scene in the book. And it's it's and it, can we talk about that then? Like that 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 scene, that encounter. It actually. You want to move to the end of the book? Now? No, I'm just I'm moving away from Tom because it seems like you don't want to talk. Well, you're about not. It. You're mo you're moving just to, to end Tom. with Tom and then move on to something else. Oh. Yeah, okay. So this is our Tom wrap up. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, to me, it wasn't just we were talking about Tom. It was well, I guess it was partly because you did skip the whole childhood stuff. And no, we're coming right back to, to that. I'm totally coming um, back to that. Oh, jeez. <laughs> okay, whatever. Um, all right. So the uh, yeah, there's an epilogue in the book about um, me running into Berlin in the present. Um, it happened in. Um, 2011, when I was ending the book. Um, I mean, when I was finishing writing the book. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 that's basically when I finished writing the book. I mean, I, I knew the ending was kind of abrupt the way it, it had, it, the way I'd left it, you mm -hmm. know, stopping in 1984, you know, when I left music basically and stopped using drugs. Um, and I knew it needed something to sort of, um, uh, tie it up, you know, to, to to just put a cap on it, and um, but I didn't know what to do. And then this, I had this experience where I ran into Berlin. I, a lot of the way that that worked for me, I mean, it wasn't even about Tom. It was about, um, and you know, I think in, nobody's looked at it this way. They, everybody always looks at it as if. Oh, Tom was so central to the book, um, even though he's not, you know, he, he plays a relatively small role. You know, in a 300-page book, it's maybe 30 pages where there's any talk of Tom. Um, uh, and, but for me, I think a lot of what made that epilogue uh, appropriate um, for my purposes, right, wasn't that I was running into Tom. It was that... Um, it was a demonstration that everything in the book is provisional. Mm. Um, because basically what that last moment did, the epilogue, what I added, was um, reveal that um, despite what it might have looked like um, in all the preceding pages where the subject has touched on it all, um, my friendship and mm -hmm. relationship with this guy, um, in fact, uh, you know, which seemed so fraught and mm -hmm. difficult. In fact, it wasn't. It was just. It was. It. It, it was actually positive and and um, and um, almost um, transcendent. You know. Mm -hmm. I mean. Um, so it was basically throwing in doubt everything I'd said in the whole book. Oh. <laughs> it was about how you know. Um, 
anything you say, you can say the opposite just as easily. Huh. Um, you end with this passage of time where you say, we know that we are constructed of time, not of sequence, and it's impossible to write time, not of sequence, except maybe in poetic flashes. I didn't want to write about a person through time, but time through a person. And yeah, there's, there's a, the way you deal with Richard Helltime in the book, sort of passing from the present to the past. You go on these walks, you leave your apartment and you walk through uh, uh, New York City, sort of taking us back to, to things that no longer exist, to people who are gone. I don't know, it's, I, I, I really like how, and again, that's sort of how New York City uh, uh, is a character. But you know, this book ends in 84, 85? Did, did the present, did you find that the present kept sort of coming in, or was that always an intention to sort of be the Richard Hell of this moment? Or is it just tied up in that passage I just read? Um, well, I just wanted the book to be as, um, as dimensional as possible. I mean, I wanted it to be, I wanted it to, um, to, uh, because, I mean, part of what I was writing the book for was for my own purposes to, to try to, um, to see if I could, make something that was equivalent to me. It's a self-portrait and, and, a, and um, a material object, right? Um, so uh, I wanted to mix in a little bit of um, stuff strictly from um, the present moment now, and yeah. you know, in the twenty first century, just just to have just to have an element of that. Um, though, in a way, um, you're I'm doomed to be doing that anyway um, on, on a on a bigger scale because um, I can't really put myself back into who I was in um, you know nineteen sixty six. I mean, I've mentioned this a couple of times and. And in other interviews, but it was really a, um, a humbling, strange experience that I had during the writing of the book. Um, that um, my sister sent me uh, um, uh, copies of a few letters that I'd written to her um, when I first came to New York mm -hmm. when I was a teenager uh, on my own, and. Um, I had the really eerie experience of completely not recognizing the author of these letters. I mean, I, I was, it, w it was bizarre. I, if I hadn't been told that I'd written these letters, I would not have ever guessed. Wow. Um, they were, I just did not recognize the person at all. Um, and that, you know, so I'm, you're, you're kind of doomed to, yeah, yeah. in writing a book like this about, um, yourself in the past, um, to seeing it from the present, no matter what. I mean, I think of myself as knowing what I was going through, um, and I have journals and I have other records, you know, interviews that I did during a lot of that period and, you know, you know during a big period that the book covers. And But still, uh, you can't really get back there. So, and you're, I'm, um, and you have to kind of recognize that, but, um, you know, I try to acknowledge it, and I do my best to uh, recreate 
what was going on, you know, what things looked like and, and uh, what my responses to, to things were. But, um, uh, um, anyway, so, yeah, I dropped in a few passages in the book that, that took place in the present just because I thought they, I wanted to flesh it out a little bit yeah, more. Yeah. And, but they also, they're relevant, you know, I mean, I use that walk in the city, you know, to take me back to what things were, how things were different now um, compared to yeah. uh, in the 60s and 70s. And um, and then the epilogue thing served its own purpose that was really relevant to yeah. the book, you know. So um, I just, you know, I mean, the book is kind of, you know, as, as much as it is a... Um, a, a recounting of a, of a of a period that interests people. I mean, I was aware of that, you know, but that's not the way I looked at it. I mean, yeah. I was writing it for my own purposes. I, like, yeah. it's like to me, it's like as pretentious as this sounds. It's like an aesthetic object. Yeah. I mean, um, I was trying to um, uh, make a work that um, operated on a lot of different levels. You yeah. know, um, yeah. it wasn't like a rock and roll memoir. No, no, or or even it seems that many books like this written from someone who was there at a particular point in time are about setting the record straight or taking credit. It seems like there's very little of that that like you can it doesn't seem like that was your intention. I mean like maybe two or three. Well, it's items. really funny because, you know, I see in people's re reactions to the book when I read reviews and et cetera, um, you get wildly differing attitudes towards that. I mean, some people describe the book as being completely about um, um, claiming credit for mm -hmm. and 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 for settling scores, um, yeah. and that's and then other people like you say the thing that surprises them about the book is that it doesn't do that. Um, for me, all I can say is that I was just trying to describe what things were like as they happened, yeah. um, and um, y you know, if I'm saying that. Um, this morning I got up and did this. Um, yeah, okay, I'm taking credit for this morning I got up and did this. But the fact is, it happened. <laughs> that morning I got up and I did that. Yeah. <laughs> so you're listening to Too Much Information on WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker. Our guest today is Richard Hell, and we're talking about his new book, I Dreamed I Was a Very Clean Tramp. You know, there's, but I want to I come to punk rock music, uh, actually. You know, there are philosophy books, PhD theses, histories all written on the meaning of punk, where it comes from, what it's all about. But there's a line in this book that uh, I think is probably one of the, my favorite descriptions of music I've, I've read. You say that rock and roll is the only art form at which teenagers are not only capable of excelling, but that actually requires that one be a teenager, more or less, to practice it at all. This is the way that punk uniquely embodies rock and roll. It explicitly asserts and demonstrates that the music is not about virtuosity. Rock and roll is about natural grace, about style and instinct, and the inherent physical beauty of youth. I, I really love that passage, and I think it's, that it's the acknowledgement of the requirement of youth. I don't know if anyone's ever gone that strong. You know? Um, yeah, well, I don't know. To me, it just seems self-evident, though, of course, it's also loose. I mean, um, as a few people have pointed out, and then I was well aware when I wrote that, my first album came out when I was 27. Mm. Um, but uh, I was a very 
immature 27. <laughs> yeah, it seems you were still young. I think we can call the Richard Hell of that record young. Um, <laughs> well, you know what I'm getting at. I mean, there are lots of people that try. But I mean, to the point of that passage is just, is is, a, is that yeah, it's a, it's about. Um, I mean, it's the difference between. Um, it, it, it's. It's just contrasting this. Um, that I mean, we all know that it's the art form of teenagers. I mean, that's um, obvious. Uh, and what does that mean? It means that you haven't gotten really good at anything because getting really good at something takes a lot of practice and and um, a certain kind of maturity and level of, of discrimination but that's not what rock and roll is about um, it's it's about what you can do um, without being skilled yeah. it's about um, uh, you, you know um, the, the things that I state in that yeah century. I guess it's sort of the DIY aspect that most people gravitate towards they and I feel that they they don't they don't connect it to youth in the way that you did. There's something about like anyone can do it. Well, but I mean that was about rock and roll in general. That wasn't about punk specifically. There's other stuff about punk specifically yeah. in there, but um, it's it's true though that it is about punk in the sense that punk is sort of the genre of rock and roll that um, that that most explicitly. Mm. relies on these, um, you know, um, uh, uh, these aspects, these qualities of what makes for rock mm. and roll. Um, you know, I mean, if you got to have beautiful harmonies, that's something else. You know, if you're like doing doo-wop um, or, uh, you know, girl group harmonies or something like that, um, it's less so. Because that does take a certain, um, just take more skill. Yeah. Um, uh, but that puts it a little bit further from pure rock and roll. Um, and punk is closer to pure rock and roll for the reasons that I'm talking about. Uh, yeah. You know, in the book, it's it's really exciting. Some of my favorite parts are when you that, when you tell us about just how clear of a vision you had. I mean, you knew exactly what you wanted to do. It seems like when you were ready to to pick up the instruments and you had, you know, such a vision, it was very clear, and it seemed like obviously something that uh, other people recognized as well. Um, you know, from as we we learn in Please Kill Me, the Richard Hell clones that show up that start showing up at CBGBs. But then with someone like Malcolm McLaren, who came to New York managing the New York Dolls and sees you and just gets your vision as well and goes back to uh, England and. Uh, Prince Four, as as Chris Stein says, and and, and starts the Sex Pistols. Um, were you aware at the time of not only how clear your vision was for yourself, but for other people like him? Um, well, you know, there are a lot of people who um, didn't react, didn't respond to what I was doing at all. I mean. Um, uh, but, and 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 in another way too. It was a little bit frustrating when they did because it would tend to be that like kind of um, imitating what I was doing or something or doing some kind of um, 
uh, like taking it as a as a fashion rather mm -hmm. than um, than taking the underlying idea, which was um, uh, find in yourself what um, is interesting to you, you know, like who you are and what you want to express, and then have everything about you contribute to communicating that. Um, so for me, I'd come up with these things like torn clothes and a haircut and stuff like that, that, um, that I, I felt like were an expression of what was going on inside me. Um, and that was more the message was the, the fun thing to do is to, uh, you know, find a way to make, you know, in, in, in music and, and, and in the whole package of having a band, you know, find ways to, uh, um, make, to turn yourself inside out that way. Mm -hmm. Um, but that wasn't really, there was less, um, you know, in retrospect, it all is obvious and inevitable, you know, I mean, stuff always works on that level of, of superficial style that people, um, uh, copy, mm -hmm. um, rather than the other thing of the underlying process, you know, but, um, so, um, I guess then though, back then, were you aware that like, that you have the sense that people could not only copy or imitate, but turn it into a big business? Or was it just when you saw the Sex Pistols, you're like, ah, okay, of course. I mean, did you have a well, sense? Well, I, they, they didn't, I didn't read them as a big business. They were just a, a, a band. Phenomenal, didn't, right? It was a picture in a magazine where there were these four guys who all had my style. Um, um, and it was just, like, funny. And, was, yeah. Uh, and, you know, and I saw Malcolm's name and, uh, see. You sussed it yeah, out. Yeah, it was like, and, and, but, you know, then it ended up being much more than I had ever uh, you know, um, could huh. could have imagined from just that moment where oh, look here's here's somebody copying you in Europe. Yeah, yeah. You know, you you talk about this moment um, when you 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 talk about how that you were demoralized a bit, but you definitely did not want to fall into the role of being the person who had influenced you know some some uh, someone else. And it seems today like people are just tripping over each other to claim any shred of credit. You know, if something else, you know, takes their style or, or connects to something they did. But it seemed like you really knew you had a sense even then that that was it. Yeah, you, you really didn't want to do that. Why? What, what, what dangers did you see in sort of falling into that role? Well, because I had more self-respect than that. You know, I mean, I, uh, um, if that was, you know, and I even felt that way about the haircut. You know, there was a period, you know, for... I don't know how many years in, um, in the 90s or something where whenever my name came up in the media, it would just it would basically be um, that I was the originator of torn clothes and chopped up hair. And um, uh, if, if that's, you know, uh, um, my claim to fame, I don't want to be famous. Yeah, yeah. You you do have one line though. It's that the uh, I'm so bored with the USA from the Clash. You seem to say like, all right, this is pushing it. You know, considering that the connections between the Clash and the Ramones and everything that was being taken from New York to be on tour and having them sing this song seems yeah. a bit much. Well, the, 
you know, there's a few ways in which, I mean, um, those, all those guys' pretenses to honesty are r really um, uh, ludicrous. I mean, they're they're funny, they're amusing, they're like they they've done various inspiring things, but they're not honest. The Sex Pistols are not honest. I mean, John Lydon is not honest. Everything he says is basically some deceptive uh, spin on glorifying himself. Yeah, and in, in the Clash, who you toured with, did you you talk about their polit the political aspect of their music, which was different? I'm not really. I don't have much. You know, knowledge or interest in the class. Yeah. Um, so let's come back to New York then. Um, so yeah. So uh, setting the record straight, though, there is the most powerful and you know probably maybe the primary instance of that is of course dealing with the song "Blank Generation" and Lester Bangs' interpretation, which leads to decades of what you say are absolute misinterpretations of the song. No, I don't say that. <laughs> I don't say it's absolute misinterpretation. I just say to make it be the entire message is wrong. Okay. It, it, yeah, it exists that yeah. concept that you know, which Lester sort of um, extracted from me. That um, misinterpretation. That, that I'm saying, sorry for calling it absolute misinterpretation, but it is a misinterpretation. It's an inadequate interpretation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so can you talk about um, that story and what you 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 want to to tell us about that song today? Um, well, the the thing you're referring to is is the the um, syndrome, like the phenomenon that every time somebody brings up that song, uh, they have to, you know in journalism, um, they have to insert. We're talking about my song "Blank Generation." They have to insert this. Uh, um, line about how uh, the author of the song um, uh, always makes the point that it's not a song about um, apathy and nihilism and um, numbness. Um, it's about the about uh, the possibility of filling in the blank and making yourself up and inventing yourself. Um, uh, uh, you know, I belong to the blank. I belong to the, you know, fill in the blank generation um, is about uh, you're being able to write whatever you want in that blank so that you, you're um, creating who you are. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, and it just has always struck me as really funny and ironic that, I mean, basically to me, it, you know, because there was one interview uh, in an obscure place where I brought up that aspect of the song, um, when obviously the song is about numbness and nihilism and 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 uh, and apathy and emptiness, um, but it also has this other little aspect. But that's the little aspect that yeah. journalists always have to insist is what I actually meant, which, to me, it, it the thing that's um, funny about it and revealing is that. If that is the thing that people insist on hanging on to, it's because they're afraid of the idea of apathy and numbness and, yeah. <laughs> and nihilism. Um, so they, you know, Nietzschean overcoming. Yeah. So they have to like turn it into like you know bring it back up to the like, f um, uh, you know, middle class. 
and mm. have it be like all affirmation and self-help and uh and you know the uh the the joy of uh self-realization you know yeah um, and, and you're which smiling. is which is complete distortion. Sure, and you're smiling now, talking about getting to to, to talk about this. But at the time when this sort of inadequate interpretation persisted and came up again and again, did that make you angry? I just thought it was silly and revealing, as I said, uh -huh. you know. And and it, and it was also um, another um, uh, example of how lazy and incompetent journalists are. Because the reason it get and half the reason it gets perpetuated like that is that um, when a, a writer who's mentioning the song goes and Google's it, um, they'll find somebody else saying that, yeah. and um, the you know and the way it's always phrased is that I Richard mm -hmm. um, insist that I really meant this, mm -hmm. um, so they'll take that at face value, um, and and repeat it. Yeah. Uh, just because, you know, um, journalists are 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 that um, half-assed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but now when you Google it, you'd probably also get a you know a link talking about the connection to the Rod McEwen song, Beat Generation. What about is, it? Which is m much more interesting. I'm I'm really curious. Like uh, for you, especially when you wrote those lyrics, uh, what kind of thoughts there were connect? You know, sort of. Because again, like there's a different. This is the blank generation. There's the beat generation. Like, what did you like that song, or did you think, oh man? No, it was just like this hilarious, stupid novelty <laughs> song, but by, um, you know, like like a a a, a, a pop um, pseudo poet, you know, who um, who was being really um, sarcastic and and kind of disgustingly um, superior to the beat generation by writing this song as if it were by a beatnik. Um, and so there, it was just like an in-joke, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, to take that skeleton of, a, of an idea and um, turn it into something else. Yeah. I mean, I heard that song probably like 10 years after, or at least, yeah, a long time after I, you know, grew up listening to Blink Generation. So there was a kind of an exciting way of connecting those two but it seems today like if you google that those two are just like linked together you know hard that, that perhaps isn't as you're saying that really important you know the links between your song and that song are not the point either well um i think it's i think it's misread you know um it in a way it's kind of like um what Richard Prince does is like an appropriation that you then paint over you at the same time. You know, it's like taking a a, a picture of a of a nurse from a cheap um, soft porn series about sexy nurses, um, and making and then slathering paint over it um, and turning it into something else. Yeah. Um, so let's let's move on. You have a passage that you said you could read. Um, if you want me to. Oh, I would love that. The book also um, gets treated as kind of an uh, indiscreet catalog of women Wrong. with whom I had, um, you know, relationships, like uh, romantic to whatever degree, um, and in those in those days, and 
um, you know, there is a lot of um, of references to whoever my girlfriend was at the moment that I'm describing. Um, but that was important to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and I want to talk specifically I mean, about uh, um, and Richard, it would it's very have been, classy. It would have I have been, to say, it's, it's very classy. I mean, these, these industries... Well, I don't know about that. But, <laughs> uh, so, I, um, so I'll read a, 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 um, something that falls into that category. The women at CBGB were interesting, too. There were intellectual high school girls and band-happy go-go dancers, pretty photographers, girl journalists, and slumming rich nightclubbing types, not to mention women band members. The topless dancers probably predominated, at least in my consciousness, but the categories overlapped. Some of the topless dancers were also intellectual teenagers who wrote about bands and came from uptown, which pretty well describes Kathy Acker, come to think of it. Most just liked to get high and spend their nights with young musicians. I liked almost all of them. Being a rock and roll musician was like being a pimp. It was about making young girls want to pay money to be near you. That was the relationship with the anonymous audience and the audience you actually met as well. I was always ready to fall in love, but I had noticed that love comes in spurts, and that was appreciated by the women. Many of them expected or even required that their boyfriends neglect them a little. It proved how important the boyfriends were. Of course, most of the dancers came from unhappy family backgrounds. Relationships were expected to include abuse. The go-go dancers made a lot more money than the band members did, and they shared it freely. One of the most powerful mental images I've attained from those days involves a girlfriend from a few months later in 1975 after I had left television and had started in with the Heartbreakers. Her name was Carol, and she was a 19-year-old topless dancer from rural Pennsylvania. She had long, straight, natural blonde hair and the face of a confused cheerleader. Her body was like a compilation of American male fantasies, so youthfully ripe that while having no excess, it seemed to be straining to burst from itself, with breasts that lifted as if they were scenting the air, an athlete's high butt that sheltered under it that little concave-sided triangle of light between the tops of her thighs, behind the soft, lush, see-through blonde pubic hair, and she was uncomplicated and good-natured and desirous to please. I was doing junk pretty often by then, but it still felt deluxe. I was sure that the drug was outlawed because the arrogant rich wanted it to themselves. Sticking a needle in my arm felt adult, like I was really in charge of myself finally, running my own destiny, out from under. It was more independent than any other choice I'd ever made. Carol often had to work at night dancing in Midtown, so she wasn't always able to catch second sets at the club. She gave me the keys to her apartment, and after I was paid for a gig, maybe $50 and a good night, I'd likely go cop a couple of bags of dope and then let myself into her place to wait until she got off work at 2 or 3 a.m. One of those late nights, I was lying alone in semi-darkness in her big bed in that continuous, soft, slow-mo rippling of dope bliss, dreaming and drifting, when she let herself in. The trebly crunch of the key in the door distracted me out of my nod. 
She saw me and broke into smiles and jumped up in her miniskirt and tight blouse onto the bed, bright-eyed, straddling my torso, standing center panel of creased 3D panties directly above my eyes and reached into her pockets and purses to lift out fistfuls and fistfuls of soft, crinkled money she released to float down all over me. Yeah, that's a great, great passage. Um... Yeah, it's classy. I have to say that's classy. Um, many of the women, you talk about them in ways that acknowledge, you know, how much they helped you. You know, the, the line about the pimp there, you know, is, is, is uh, dark as the word pimp might be. There are many women who help you financially early on, and you talk about some of these girlfriends that uh, uh, they certainly didn't put you on your path, but they kept you, I mean, they helped you stay on it, it seems. Is that fair to say? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, was it difficult though? Were there some relationships that you're like, oh man, I, I just can't, I'm not putting that in the book? Um, I didn't deliberately leave anything out for a reason like that, though, you know, I mean, there are, there are, there's a lot of things, that, not a lot, but um, something pops up every couple of weeks since the book was published, or, you know, since, since I finished the final edit or whatever, that um, it occurs to me, I, I, I left out. Yeah. You know, like there was a whole, there was a whole, in people I didn't mention that, you know, did have some impact. But there was a whole, um, there was a whole trip to New Orleans for like six or eight, eight weeks where I was recording. Um, and, you know, t towards the end of the period the book covers that I just completely forgot about, you know. I mean, um, once or twice it would come to mind um, in the process of writing the book, but it, it, it never happened at a moment when it was, you know, I, where I was actually at work, or, and it's one of those things that just never got handled. And, you know, the same goes for uh, some uh, relationships I had. Yeah. I want to end with this uh, idea of running away, which is tied to the title of the book, uh, I Dreamed I Was a Very Clean Tramp. Um, that comes from one of your earliest uh, adventures of running away that you wrote as a kid. And you talk about having this impulse that stays with you to now, and yet, you know, for someone who's lived in the same place and uh, uh, who's lived in the same city for so long, it might, you know, you could read, ah, oh, Richard is happy, he's found where he needed to be. That's absolutely not the case. You just, you seem to tell us there are, can, I'd like to hear about how that stays with you and how you uh, find other ways to satisfy. Hey, I'm sorry, I got distracted in my mind while you were talking. Oh. You repeat what you were asking me. I just wanted to come back to the idea of running away, which yeah. is where we get this title of, of you as a young boy. Uh -huh. You know, you go on an adventure where you run away. And it seems that you could say, ah, Richard comes to New York, stays here, almost in the same apartment. He doesn't need to run away anymore. He's, he's home. Whereas that's, you make it clear to us in the book that you discover other ways of, or, or satisfying that impulse or the, yeah, well, yeah, it's a kind of, um, uh, basically, I, I'm, I mean, the, the purest running away is to actually do that, run away. Um, leave everything about yourself behind and go um, begin again somewhere where you're not known and, um, and, and, and where you don't know the environment. Um, the classic idea of running away. Mm -hmm. um, 
but there's other ways of of doing that um and um you know uh, in your consciousness uh without that, that classic physical um total uh um you know um what do you call it uh when transplanting of yourself mm -hmm. um and uh, you know one i mean i don't know it's, it's it all it all just sounds so diluted but it's really true that if you um like as an artist if you try to do something a new new medium that you don't know in fact, you know, I have this fantasy that I'm going to become a painter when I um, uh, lose my uh, mental faculties, <laughs> assuming I can still see. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Once I become senile and can't put words together anymore, yeah. I'll start painting. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, really, I mean, that's part of what was fun about becoming a musician i mean that was a real that was a major yeah. for me um um instance of that you know you know the essence of running away uh, even even though it's not um you know uh putting all my possessions in a handkerchief yeah. and getting on a cargo boat to africa or something yeah. um it still was entering an area where I knew nothing and nobody knew me and um, making everything up from scratch. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, and that's still, I mean, to me, that's my method. That's, that's, that's what I like doing yeah. as, a, as a way to keep life interesting. And what are some of the ways that satisfies that impulse today here in New York in a city that seems harder and harder to do that or even have fun in? Well, get married. <laughs> oh man, this was fun. All right, I, 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 uh, I, I'm sorry if I picked the wrong words sometimes, you know, but I, I did my best. You did great. Uh, I had no complaints. <laughs> so thank you so much, Richard, for coming on the show and and this. <laughs> That's it for this edition of Too Much Information. Special thanks once again to Richard Hell for making this happen. You can find links and archives and subscribe to the TMI podcast at WFMU.org. And please give a listen to my other podcast, Benjamin Walker's Theory of Everything. You can find that one at toe.prx.org.